Okay. So we were talking about discursive thought and how discursive thought might be a hindrance or might not be. The Buddha makes a major, major distinction in there that the Mahasi um, article that I've read does not make. And that is, is that there are two kinds of discursive thoughts or two kinds of verbal thinking, wholesome and unwholesome. Mahasi doesn't make this distinction. He kind of classifies all discursive thought as hindrance. And that one should remove the hindrances, which means now they're no longer in discursive thinking and they're only in observational kind of thinking. Um, if that were the case, then meditation would be extremely difficult because that first bar of removing all thought, all discursive thought, is something that a, a normal human can't do. It's, it's like the distinction between a big ship being able to change its uh, uh, direction by making some small changes to the rudder and it will veer off for instance if you see the uh, the ship is heading directly towards another ship he can veer off so that he doesn't hit it but it's really hard for a big ship like that that can veer off and not hit what it was going to hit to actually stop dead in the water can't do it, right? There's too much momentum right. built in. This is also the way that we have to work with discursive thought, is that we cannot stop them, but we can veer them off. And what are we going to do with that? We're going to veer them off from unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. In other words, the wholesome is, is that you didn't have a collision. And that's very wholesome. As opposed to letting that ship hit the other ship because you can't stop it. This is why the removal of the hindrances is generally so difficult for the, uh, the ones who were practicing with the uh, Mahasi method and why the students tend to allow the hindrances to remain while they're doing the noting. So, the, the Buddha does not teach that way. The Buddha teaches, um, and I've got, oh, so many um, stories from various um, suttas but I tend to uh, focus in on Sutta number 19 that has the name of two kinds of thoughts. And there's also the Sutta number 117, which is um, an exposition on the Eightfold Noble Path and most specifically about one's right effort. Okay, so one's right effort then is to remove unwholesome thoughts and to replace it with wholesome thoughts. In other words, we're beginning like that big ship. We cannot stop the mind, but we can veer it off so that it doesn't cause momentary damage. It doesn't go hit something, right? 
no dukkha. And that's the important thing, that many people think that the mind has to stop before uh, we can say no dukkha. But in fact, the Buddha is pointing out, oh no, wholesome thoughts will bring about the state of um, freedom from suffering. Why? Because it's our discursive thoughts that got us into the suffering in the first place. So, in Sutta number 19, <clears throat> the Buddha gives a story. And the story is about a cowherd. And I've been telling the students this story because it's so powerful to begin to understand exactly what the job is that needs to be done. Okay. And the story about the cowherd is, is that he's taking it through uh, a, uh, an area down a path. And that path has villagers. It's got food stalls. It's got children. And the job of the cowherd is to take his small herd of cows. Now, we're talking about in ancient India. We're not talking about uh, uh, drovers on the Chisholm Trail where you've got cowboys on horses carrying thousands of cows up. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a poor farmer that's got four, five, six cows, and he's got to manage them himself. And so normally he will carry a stick along so that if the cows are not going to stay on the path because, you know, there's some delicious food on that food stall, he's going to go grab a carrot or a, a cucumber or something. And so the um, cowherd has to be very mindful to whack that cow with that stick to keep it on the path. Now, when you whack the cow with the stick, that's actually, as we were talking about before, seizing that object by striking that cow or striking that unwholesome thought to say, don't go there. Why? Because the, uh, in the story, the cowherd knows that if he does not whack that cow, that cow is going to either step on a child or uh, bust into some stall or cause some damage. And then the villagers possibly in a gang, are going to come after that uh, poor cow herd and may, in fact, um, take his cows away from him in payment for the damage that they've done. So he is actually quite relieved that he can get through that village without any damage at all. But he's got to whack those cows to keep them in line. Okay, so this is exactly how the beginning meditator should practice in the sense that only allowing wholesome thoughts and not allowing unwholesome thoughts to arise. So as soon as the unwholesome thoughts arise, this is where the Buddha would recommend the little phrase that he used, aha, I see you, Myra. In fact, that aha, I see you, Myra, is the same thing as whacking that cow. Right, so we whack those cows. Now, after a while, the cows get uh, to where the destination is, which is some pasture or something, perhaps a uh, field where the rice has been gleaned, and so you have rice stubble and chaff and, and stuff for the cows to eat. Now, they're safe, so long as the cows don't wander off. That means that the cow herd does not have to stand right there with them with his stick, that in fact the cow herd can keep an eye on them and go sit down under a tree. And so long as he's watching the cows to make sure that they stay where they are, 
he doesn't have any more work to do now. His work is done. The effort was keeping getting the cows in line or getting the mind in wholesome thought. Once we get the mind in wholesome thought, then the Buddha says is that uh, when the cow herd is sitting under the tree and he knows that the cows are grazing because they've got their head down to the ground. So he knows they're grazing and all he has to do is to glance to see that the cows are grazing, which means their heads to the ground. And now he doesn't have anything to do. So he doesn't have to watch them every minute. So what this means is like in the analogy that when once we have only wholesome thoughts, we can begin to put gaps or spaces between the wholesome thoughts. The cow herd does not have to watch the cows all the time because he can he can just look at them and see that they're grazing. But if he sees a cow with his head up in the air, then he has to take, pay t- attention to that cow because that cow may wander off. But so long as the cows are grazing, he's got nothing to do and he can just relax. So, in this regard, the noting then of the Mahasi method, the noting would be to note that all of the thoughts, all of the thoughts are wholesome. Now, let's go look at this from the position of applying the mind to the wholesome and then sustaining the mind on the wholesome. What does that mean? That means that in the beginning, the applying of the mind was is that you've got to start whacking those uh, cows that are getting off the path. We have to whack those thoughts that are unwholesome. How do we know what kind of thoughts are unwholesome? Thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about someplace else. Thoughts about restlessness, thoughts about travel, going someplace. So if you're sitting at home and you have thoughts about your job or the office, that would be a hindrance. Okay. Thoughts about your childhood would be a hindrance. Thoughts about this present moment, this particular breath, those kind of discursive thoughts are uh, wholesome. Tamarato, I have a question that might be difficult, and I think it's a little, a little technical. Okay. But it's kind of arose from our our previous conversation um, when we were talking about how the the judgment of things into good and bad, uh, kind of like the the apple of knowledge in Eden, mm-hmm. um, is kind of the root of, well, in some sense, is the root of suffering. Um, I know that's an oversimplification, but uh, this separation of wholesome and unwholesome thoughts seems to almost be a contradiction and that we're still making this black and white, this is good and bad. And so do you see the dilemma in my mind there? I don't see the... um, um... 
uh, explain it to me that you can't see the distinction between wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts in the sense that wholesome thoughts, um, directed thoughts, intentional thoughts are more than likely going to take you where you want to go. And unwholesome thoughts, unintentional thoughts are going to keep you going in places that you don't want to go. Or you could say that wholesome thoughts um, are a way of basically talking yourself into feeling good and unwholesome thoughts in a way uh, are just talking yourself into feeling bad. And I think that you know the difference between feeling good and feeling bad. Yeah, I, I do. Okay. <laughs> I get, do you think that it's a, a black and white situation or or is it more of a graze with you know a, a continuum actually it is a continuum and uh the way that it actually operates is is that we um in the beginning we have a rudimentary understanding of what is dukkha and what is not dukkha and as we progress along the path we begin to see the things that I thought were quite acceptable and quite okay, now I see as got subtle dukkha that I didn't see before. And so there is a kind of a continuum in the sense that this looks white to me. And later I say, no, wait a minute, there's whiter than that. This is only gray. <laughs> okay. So this is a way of looking at it is, is that it's not a matter of in this particular moment, is this thought black, white, or gray? But rather in this moment, is this thought wholesome and conducive towards um, correct practice or not? And in that regard, the white or the wholesome is very tiny and the unwholesome is huge. Okay, for instance, there is basically very, very few ways of setting a knife down. You've got a knife in your hand, and there's very, very few ways to set that knife down. But how many different ways can you use that knife to cut yourself? A lot. A lot, right? Chinese uh, 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 death by a thousand cuts, right? You can do all kinds of damage with that knife. So in that regard, we're going to begin to look at the better way to do it rather than saying a whole, an unwholesome thought is only unwholesome when I know it's unwholesome and all of the thoughts are wholesome. Is possibly the wrong way to look at it. A better way to look at it is all thoughts are unwholesome and only a few are wholesome but we already have defined what those wholesome thoughts are. And then later, we begin to open it up through investigation and wisdom to include new items that we would have automatically thrown out as unwholesome and begin to inspect them and say, well, they're not so unwholesome after all, and we can begin to include that. But that would be a little bit more advanced. In the beginning, we're going to specify exactly what is wholesome thoughts of this present moment applied to the dhamma 
that's it. In other words, if you're thinking of the Buddha Dhamma, if you're thinking of Dhamma, you think probably wholesome thoughts. If you're not thinking about the Dhamma, you're probably thinking about unwholesome things, the world, past, future. That's what makes, in fact, the noble Dhamma, the noble Dhamma, in the sense of the four noble truths, have been instantaneously correct and available to each person at each moment of time before, during, and after the lifetime of the Buddha. The way the human mind works, the Four Noble Truths always apply. There is no time when uh, the Four Noble Truths are suspended. That's what makes them noble where everything else about the world, including our thoughts, just come and go and come and go. But if we bring it back to the wholesome thoughts of um, the Dhamma applied to this very moment, how I mean by that is mulling over, well, last week she said this, that, and the other, and I think that's dukkha. No, that's a hindering thought. But if we have it in the sense of this is dukkha, this is the cause of dukkha, the way that I'm thinking. Now, that's wholesome. Another way of looking at it, in fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, this is, is emphasized, and Mahasi emphasizes it to a great extent also. <clears throat> and it's in dozens of suttas. And this is the five aggregates. Have you ever heard of the five aggregates? Yes. Okay. So the five aggregates of the body, the feelings, consciousness, perception, and our memory system, or sankara, are the five. In other words, what we're looking at is body-mind. Now, the Satipatthana breaks the mind into two groups in the sense of the condition of the mind and the content of the mind to where in this we're doing it a little bit more sophisticated in the sense that we're looking at um, the way that the mind works. So you have feelings, body, you have consciousness, perception, and sankara. What that means is, is that the sankara and the conscious object are put together in perception, right? And that that's going to be the outcome. In other words, our, the outcome of what we actually experience is not uh, solely due to the input, due our sensory awareness, but it is also mixed with the past to come up to what we see. So um, if you see someone in a particular uniform, if you recognize that uniform, then that means that by recognizing that uniform, uh, that that person is in, you already think you know a whole lot about that person. Why? Because uh, the clothes make the man. So if you see someone in a general's suit as opposed to someone in a just a sailor suit or someone in a nun's habit or someone in an SS uh, uh, uniform, then we automatically think that we know things about the person based upon the way they're dressed. This is also the issue of don't judge a book by its cover, right? So if we see someone dressed in a certain way, we will actually process the knowledge of that uniform when we see that person to come up with who they are in our own mind, which may be completely wrong as opposed to who they really are. 
That might, in fact, be a Halloween costume, and we can't tell the difference. He's not actually an SS officer. We haven't had any SS officers in 70 years. But when, but, so when, but when you see an SS officer's uniform, what you'll see it is in a movie, and they're wanting you to portray that this guy dressed in that SS officer is now playing the part of an SS officer in this movie. All right. Very rarely will you find a stand-up comedian walking out on stage dressed as an SS officer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would go so well. No, right, that wouldn't work, would it? <laughs> he might get uh, booed off the stage before he gets his first joke told. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason that I'm making this little point about these five aggregates is because that is something this worthwhile mulling over wholesomely in the sense of I am not this body. I am not this part of the body. I'm not this part of the body. I'm not this. I can feel it. There's touch. There's sensations. Also, I'm not the feelings. Yeah, the feeling of anger is there, but I'm not angry. And so basically what the whole teachings of the five aggregates are is for the student to come to understanding that we are not who we thought we were. Look how many industries, in fact, uh, cater to the delusion that people think I am the body. Look at the industries. I mean, you've got the cosmetic industry, you've got uh, fashion industry, You've got Nike shoes industry. I mean, that $300 or $500 pair of shoes, a, a, a $20 pair of shoes will do everything that that $500 pair of shoes will do. But why did people buy the five? Because I am the body. These are my feet. And when I put those shoes on it, that makes my feet wonderful. Because I did spend $3,000 on a pair of Nikes or Jordans or something. Okay. So this is the delusion that we have. And when we, as meditators, are sitting down with the wholesome thought, the wholesome thought would be, yeah, there is sensation in the body. There is that itch. But it is not me that's itching. And then uh, to the point that, yes, all of that stuff happened in the past. But the me that's here now is not the same me that was in the past. That I can let that past go because it's not me. But if I'm thinking about the past and the past comes up to some event that happened, uh, that when when, when the thought arises, the feeling of grief, remorse, sadness will occur. And then we'll get stuck on that kind of thought. The right way to look at it is is that, yes, but this is not me now. That's not who I am now. That was in the past. The past is gone. It's old. It's forgotten. And then you can make an extra point to it is, is that, and that behavior I shall never do again. That that's not who I am now. I don't do that kind of stuff now. That I live now a noble life, therefore I don't have to remorse about something that happened a long time ago to literally someone else. So, 
This is why um, <clears throat> Mahasi and the Buddha and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uh, are so strong about this five aggregates is because this is what helps us do the first fetter to recognize that we're not permanent. Everything is temporary. Everything arises and passes away. Everything falls apart. And our job is, is that when it is dead, to throw it out. That there's no reason for us to act like the story uh, in Gatasi Gatama that when her son died, <coughs> she was so grief-stricken that she carried that dead baby all over the place to one doctor after another trying to get the doctor to bring him back to life. And the Buddha said, okay, when, he came, when she came to him, okay, I'll perform a magic trick for you, but you have to bring one Anna seed from 10 different households with the condition that that household has never known death. When she came back to the Buddha, she came back without the baby because every household that she went to, she could not get even one anise, not, or a mustard seed, not even one, because every household knew death. And when she came to understand that this is okay, she actually did relinquish that child. So we need to learn to do that same thing, to take that lesson that it's not a dead baby so much that we're actually carrying around, but it is dead memories or all kinds of dead babies <laughs> that we are, in fact, carrying around. And that we need to drop those things, to relinquish it, to stop going into the past. That, in fact, I am not my past. So this is a very wholesome thing to do, and this is the kind of stuff that's useful, worthwhile, and wholesome uh, for students to take on discursive thought that is wholesome, as opposed to unwholesome thoughts that would hinder us. Now, you've probably already heard me talk about it in this sense, and that is, is that we spend our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now is the time to talk ourselves into feeling good. Right. This is exactly that point of taking the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind. What are unwholesome thoughts? The kind of thoughts that make us feel bad. Give us feelings like fear, anxiety, anger, frustration, um, uh, a sense of impending doom, a sense of loss, grief, regret, remorse, guilt. Did I give a complete list? I think I can come up with a few more. <laughs> but then, on the other hand, the wholesome kind of thoughts that are going to then give us uh, more pleasant feelings as opposed to suffering kinds of feelings. What are those pleasant feelings? Feelings of joy, feelings of gladness, feelings of gratitude, feelings of generosity, feelings of safety, feelings of security. Feelings of satisfaction, contentment, and even feelings of euphoria. Feelings of really being on top of the game. Feelings of success. So these are the kinds of feelings that we can arrive at if we have wholesome thoughts. 
that we are unlikely to arrive at if we have no thought at all. It is possible for us to have no thought, but no thought is not necessarily a um, defining characteristic of second jhana. That in fact, second jhana is nothing but first jhana with the knobs turned down even further. That's the way to look at it. That in fact, um, going from a worried state of mind into a more relaxed but hindered mind is a relaxation. Going from uh, hindrances into wholesome thought and only wholesome thought is a great step into relaxation. And then the next relaxation state would be to going from wholesome thought one after another after another, only wholesome thoughts, into having wholesome thoughts with gaps in between. And as those gaps get longer and longer, we begin to have different kind of communication in the sense that we're no longer paying attention to the discursive thinking of the wholesome thoughts. We are actually paying a whole lot more attention to the feelings that are arising due to those thoughts. What kind of feelings that are arising? The feeling of safety, security, the feeling of contentment, the feeling of generosity and gratitude, the feeling of contentment, the feeling of success. So as the thoughts diminish, and we have begin to have thoughts between these um, wholesome thoughts, the good feelings that, brought, that were brought up with those good feelings now become more intense because we're spending more mind moments paying attention to them. So we begin to really feel good. The body becomes really energized because we're really paying attention to what's going on because we're not spending so many mind moments in discursive thoughts. And so we can really get into the feelings, uh, the Vedana, as well as spending much more time in the observation or in the noting, just to see what's going on, the noting. So we have the front. So in the beginning for the meditator, we have three kinds of thoughts going on. Discursive thoughts uh, we have that are both wholesome and unwholesome. We have feeling thoughts and we have observational thoughts or wisdom thoughts or seeing things directly as they are. Okay. As we then uh, reduce first changing the wholesome thought, uh, the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts and then beginning to put some gaps in those discursive wholesome thoughts we begin then to have more mind moments or more time to pay both attention to the feelings that we have and paying attention to or being mindful of or being aware of all kinds of other sensory awareness, including the awareness of how we're feeling inside and the, and the awareness of the sensory input coming in. Because the sensory input that we've been having in the uh, discursive kind of thinking is no longer there. What this means then in the second jhana is, is that the feelings, the good feelings that we have manufactured in the first jhana now become great, big, huge, overwhelming, uh, almost in the sense of all over the place, 
Why? Because we're really paying attention to the fact that a whole lot of stuff is going on that we hadn't been paying attention to because we've been thinking about things instead of absolutely observing them. And then in a later phase of the practice, even those feelings feel too much. Even though they were always there, we were at such a gross level with the mind that we didn't know it, but now that we can calm the mind, we can get to see what feelings are going on, all of these good, delicious, joyful feelings, and we begin to have a bit too much of that. And so we begin to let those things subside so that uh, the analogy is like the, the lotus flower finally comes up out of the, uh, 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 this, this, the stream. What is the stream? All of that pity, all of that sukha, all of those really, really good feelings. And now the lotus flower can rise above it. And so even though all of those feelings are there, we kind of let them subside. And this would then be the third jhana. So as you can see what's happening here is, is that we're going from a set of agitation down to more peaceful, more relaxed, more peaceful and relaxed, more and more so. And so the students who are practicing meditation and trying to get something out of it are putting in more effort than they need to put in. That this is actually figuring out how to put in just the right amount of effort and as we get success in that, our next success is even less effort. And even less effort. So that we wind up making things really, really easy. <clears throat> An example of that is, have you ever had to push off a car or push a car because it wouldn't start or it wouldn't run? Yes, I have. Okay. You know that that initial inertia, when that car is sitting still, that takes a lot of work to get it to start moving its first inch. But the second inch is easier. And once you get the car rolling, if it's on a road, a flat road that's got no bumps or anything like that, now the car is really easy. You can actually just push the car by walking. Why? Because the car itself has already taken up all of the energy and the momentum that you, you put in. So this is why... <clears throat> Right effort develops into what it could be referred to as energy. Because it's so easy, that it happens so easy that it's almost like that the energy that we put into the car to get it moving is now continuing to help the car move. Newton had something to do with that in the, um, uh, I think it's the third law of thermodynamics. Uh, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Well, that's the same thing with, the, with one's own right effort, that it begins to build up. Okay, so this is the way that we um, begin to practice more correctly, is to make sure that every thought is a wholesome thought. One thought after another, after another. Only when you realize that this is one wholesome thought, one after another, after another, then you can begin to pray with uh, putting some gaps into the thoughts. If you do this too soon, the gaps will get filled with unwholesome thoughts or hindrances. They will naturally arise to fill in those gaps. 
So we have to continue to practice so that we can get just the wholesome thoughts. All right. So now we have actually been working with a uh, classical definition of first jhana. So I haven't been talking about it, but now let's start talking about it in the sense that the first jhana is not uh, an empty mind. But the first jhana is, in fact, one wholesome thought after another. It is called applied and sustained thought. Applied and sustained thought actually is that we're applying it to wholesome and we're maintaining it as wholesome. And when we can apply the mind and keep it in wholesome states, then naturally we're going to feel a whole lot better than we would have if we had been sitting with unwholesome thoughts. Especially if those wholesome thoughts that we're having are intended specifically to uh, engender good feelings. Okay, so what kind of wholesome thoughts then could we have about the here now that would be very wholesome? Well, the first one that we mentioned is, aha, I see you, Mr. Hendricks. Aha, I see you, Mr. Turd. Okay, throw you out. So, that's wholesome, is the recognition that I can, in fact, see the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome. And I see that that, that thought is a thought of the past, thought of the future, or thought of someplace else is unwholesome. Out it goes. And we're going to start replacing it then with wholesome thoughts again so this is how we start to practice with only the wholesome thoughts one after another but these wholesome thoughts are actually intended to uh to talk ourselves into feeling good so we have thoughts like wow this is nice thoughts of uh everything's all right everything's okay no worries Everything is fine. These are the kind of thoughts that we can have. Uh, thoughts about, I'll worry about that tomorrow. I don't have to worry about that right now. Everything is okay right now. If I have a thought, I've got to go to work tomorrow, the thought is, yeah, but that's tomorrow. Right now, I'm going to feel really great. I don't have to work right now. Everything is okay right now. Push the future off into the future instead of bringing the future into this present moment to muck up stuff. Because if you think about the future, it's not thinking about something um, this delightful, but rather it's thinking about some work we've got to do, some job that needs to be done. And that we have the idea of those jobs that need to be done because we don't feel safe unless we do them, that it's going to be dangerous, okay? So now we're going to actually do things to cultivate feeling good. Cultivate feeling secure. Cultivate feeling satisfied. And we can do that with thoughts of the Dhamma, including in the sense of thoughts of this body is not my body. These feelings are not my feelings. These are just feelings of pity and joy. They're not mine. They're just, there they are. Why? Because we manufactured them. It's sort of like a kid playing with Legos. 
and he builds a little Lego fort or something, right? But the kid automatically knows that he is not that fort of Lego chips. He built it, but it's not him. The same thing, too, is uh, so when we say I am angry or I feel good, then that's the mistake because it's not me that feels good. It's just good feelings. It's just this is pity. It's not I am full of pity. It's this is pity. So this is the way we begin to change our thinking is just observe this is it with the five aggregates. This is old memory. So if a hindrance comes up, you can say, that's just Sankara. That's just old memory. Not me. Not not my past, just the past. And so when we uh, perceive things, then our perception, we have to understand, is unique because it's built out of our own past. But that perception is not my perception. It's just a, a, a mental image or a mental perception but I am not the mind I am not the body I am not the feelings this is a a really excellent thing to spend our time with uh, because it's liberating to recognize I am not this I am not that I don't know what I am but I don't have to figure out what I am I have to figure out what I am not I can stop making the mistakes of thinking I am something when in fact I'm not that And if we keep going that, then we can recognize, wait a minute, there's not much of a me here anywhere. There's not much of a me anywhere. This is what we would call inductive logic. If it's true for one thing, it's true for the second thing, it's true for the third thing, it's true for the fourth thing, then it must be true for everything. This is inductive logic. Um, you can see it in mathematics, especially when they have n plus one someplace. That's inductive logic. That if it happens within, it'll happen with n plus one. If it happens with n plus one, now that's a new n, and that n plus one will work also. So inductive logic is is that if the body is not the self, the feelings are not the self, our ability to uh, take input and see is not the self. Our our uh, ability to understand that stuff is not the self and all of my past that I use to figure out what this is is not me there's really not much me in here anywhere this is what we mean by anatta and there's another way of approaching that all the same topic and that is is to see this changes this thought changed from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought this feeling changed from anxiety into satisfaction. This changed to that. This match was a match, and I strike it, and now it burns, and then it goes out. Everything keeps changing. Things arise, and they pass away. If things always arise and pass away, and we can see that happening one thing after another, after another, after another, in fact, the most stable thing is the human body. The human body will last 70, 80, 90 years, right? No, it doesn't. The body that you're sitting in right now is not the same body that you had when you were three years old, if you can use a you in there anywhere. In fact, it's not the same body at all. Every molecule is different. Not one molecule, not one atom, not one cell 
every cell that was in the child, they say uh, that a cell lasts at most seven years. And they're, they're, they die away and are replaced. The water comes in. The water that you drank when you had your first uh, breast milk, none of that water is left in the body anywhere. Everything is constantly in motion. Everything is in flux. If everything arises and passes away, then that's inductive logic because we don't know everything, but we do know this arises and passes away, that arises and passes away, this arises and passes away, this is arising and passes away. Tell me what is it that arises and never passes away? And if it did never pass away, how did it arise in the first place? Okay, so now we're getting into the concept of cause and effect, that everything has to have a cause. And when that cause is there, the effect is there. When the cause goes away, the effect is likely to go away. An example of that is, uh, let us say a house fire, that the candle was all that was there for the heat. The candle burned down, wax got into the carpet, and now the carpet is on fire. And it smolders for a while and burns for a while, and pretty soon there's enough heat that the carpet touches um, uh, the curtain. And now it's got a new fuel. And then that curtain will start burning, and now the, uh, the ceiling paint is catching on fire. And so you can see that it goes from one fuel to another fuel to another fuel to another fuel. But if we could put that fire out, when it was just on the carpet, when it was just a small place on the carpet, then that the next fuel is going to be robbed. We're going to rob it of its fuel, and therefore the fire will go out. This is exactly the way that we're going to work, operate with our practice of meditation, is we're going to begin to rob the fuel of the unwholesome thoughts and give more fuel to wholesome thoughts. But we can also recognize that if everything arises and passes away, then what about this me inside that I have been told is permanent, long, everlasting, is strong enough to survive death, and will be reborn either in one of the four realms of the uh, Hindus or in a Christian heaven or hell? What is it that is strong enough to survive death when in fact everything is subject to birth and death and decay? What is it that's not subject to birth, death, and decay? Has to be magic. And this is one of the reasons why this practice of Anapanasati helps us eliminate that first fetter. The first fetter is, who am I? Personality view. And you recognize that you're not <clears throat> who you think you are. <laughs> that who you think you are is nothing but a combination of stuff that happened in the past. Hmm. And you're not that anymore. <laughs> so who are you? The answer is something that's constantly changing, constantly in motion, including the fact that it's not always there. It arises and passes away. And arises and passes away. Now, this is actually kind of observational. You could imagine that um, some things 
when they arise and they pass away, the idea is, is that it's always there. Where uh, in fact it may not be. It might just be arising because of conditions. And when those conditions go away, it's not there anymore. And when the conditions come back, it comes back. But the human mind will go so far as to say, oh, well, even though I can't see it now, it still must be there. Or if I think about it, or if I make the conditions, in fact, the condition to be if I go looking for a self, I'll find one. In other words, we're creating the conditions for it. But there's also times when uh, the human being is altruistic, thinking about others, and is not thinking about himself, not thinking selfish thoughts. At that point, there is no self there. There's only a self there when we have selfish thoughts. So the self is part of the hindrances. When your mind is free from hindrances, it's also free from self. This is why it's a very good idea to start um, investigating the five aggregates. Is because there's no self in the body. The body is going to grow old. It's going to die. There's nothing you can do about it. You can paint it. But then all that beauty is not in, in, not in the girl's face. The beauty is in the makeup. The beauty is the paint job. You can imagine that when a house is sold, uh, they, they, they have two different kinds. One is ready for sale, and the other one is it needs TLC, tender loving care. What that means is, is that the house is worth more with a paint job. The house is worth $10,000, but if you paint it with uh, $500 worth of paint, now it's worth $20,000, right? Same house, new paint job. This is the way that the human mind works. We see things, and we think that it's one thing when, in fact, it's not. It's just an old house with a new paint job rather than a nice house. <laughs> so... This is how we look at things in the sense that we try to make everything a paint job, trying to make things better, when in fact you can't make that house, that old house, better by just putting paint on it. That's just giving it the appearance. The same thing is uh, the case with makeup or um, muscle building or whatever, that we think that I am better because the body is better. But in fact, that's not the case. Maybe, in fact, uh, uh, the case was is that that bodybuilder, while he was bodybuilding, he was also giving himself wholesome thoughts that he didn't have when he was not in the gym. When he was not in the gym and not building his body, he was saying, oh, poor me, I'm no good. But while he's at the gym, he's saying, wow, look at this. I can actually do this. And so now that he's a muscle-bound muscle man, guess what? He changed his attitude in doing that. But it was the attitude change that's the main thing, not the muscle building. That in fact, you can use Anapanasati the easy way. You don't have to go around building a lot of muscles in the, in the body. You can build a few muscles up here. <laughs> this is the uh, one's right effort, is to pump up the brain into um, <clears throat> higher quality thoughts.
and there's really no self there anywhere. And we do, we understand that from two different approaches. One is the five aggregates. I am not this body. I am not these feelings. I am not this consciousness. I am not these memories. I am not this perception mechanism that puts together what I see and what I remember to come up with something that's happening right now. I'm not those things. And the other one uh, with the Anapanasati is to recognize everything is changing. Everything is temporary. Anicca vata sankara upata vayadamino. Everything is in flux. Everything is changing, including who I am. So we couldn't actually define it. Here's an exercise that's very interesting. Sit down and write down, let us say, at least one page full of all the attributes of who you are that define you completely. And then set that paper down. And then one month later, go back and do that same exercise. Who am I? And write it down, at least a full page of stuff, maybe bullet items. And guess what? You take that one that you did last month and the one that you just did, they're not going to be the same. You're changing. So if you're changing, then how can you say, this is who I am? Because you don't know. Things are changing too fast. And this is, some, this is one of the most important teachings of the Buddha because if we think that we're unchanging, everlasting and permanent and still subject to suffering, now we got a problem because we can't fix it if it's permanent, everlasting, unchanging and subject to suffering. This is where religions come in or magic comes in. I need a magical solution because a real solution does not exist to the problem. But the, but the reality is, is that there was already magic in it, and that was the magic of thinking that I am permanent. I am a soul. I am everlasting. I will, I will survive death. But when you recognize that that's not the case, everything is temporary. Everything arises and passes away. That gives us a, an out. That gives us a new back door to leave this self that does not really hold much weight. In other words, we can actually escape from that dukkha by escaping from that self that we had thought that we were. I am not that thought. I am not that bad feeling that I had because I had that memory of some bad thing that happened last month. But that was last month. It's in the past. That's not who I am now. That was who I was then. And so we, in fact, then can, with this understanding of the five aggregates, and including uh, Anicca, we can come to understand I am not my past. I am not who I thought I was. That I can be who I want to be right this very moment. That's the liberation. Is that the self is not fixed. It's dynamic, and not only that, but it comes and goes based upon conditions. And that's enormously liberating. It gives you a back door, a way out. And so how do we practice that way out? Is by every time that we see an unwholesome thought arise, 
We can say, that's not me. Me is sitting here and enjoying this moment, taking a deep breath. It is not even my breath. <laughs> just, just a breath. So this is the way that we practice, and that gets us then into this state called the first jhana, where we can investigate all of this change. But it's an investigation that's full on and investigating it from a very wholesome place. So we have this applied and sustained thought. The mind is free from hindrances, and we allow ourselves to feel safe and secure that's sukha. Safety and security and uh, contentment is, in fact, sukha. Freedom from suffering. The suffering is not safe. It's insecure. Suffering is not uh, content. It's malcontent. It's, it's not satisfying. It's dissatisfying. But when we can get ourselves through our wholesome thoughts into a state of safety, security, contentment, and satisfaction, then that's the sukha. And when we practice enough, then we get the idea, I can do this, I can do this, I know I can do this, I know that I can clean out the mind, I know there's no self in there anyplace. Now, when I say I can in this regard, I'm actually talking about it in the sense of a conventional self or conventional language, rather than talking I as a real self. But the, but the directive is can do. The directive is possible. The, uh, the, uh, the operative is here's that skill, can be put to work. When this happens, the fourth item of the Eightfold Noble Path comes into play, and that is one's right attitude. One's right attitude of no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can throw that stuff out. I can get the mind back into a good state. And so this is the way that we uh, uh, are to practice. Rather than trying to eliminate thought altogether, we're going to direct it. Direct it into wholesome, direct it into this present moment. Now, when you talk about doing other things, yeah, you can actually do other things. Anapanasati is designed to be done in any and every posture. So you can do Anapanasati while riding a bicycle. Okay. How, how would we uh, not do Anapanasati? Oh, it is so far to town. There's another 12 kilometers. It's a hot day and I've got so much work to do, but I got to do this thing. Okay. But uh, doing it with Anapanasati is, okay, let's do this pedal. All right, let's do this pedal. I can take a breath. So far, so good. We'll get there. No problems, no worries, right? So even riding a bicycle, it has to do with can we change our attitude? Can we change it from unwholesome bicycle riding into wholesome bicycle riding? If we can use it with that analogy, I don't know of what analogy, exercise or anything else, taking a cold shower, for instance. It all has to do with, are we going to do this little sequence of events that include uh, the breath? It includes uh, uh, changing the thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome. 
it, it, inclu it includes changing the feelings from feeling bad into feeling good. And this is the practice of Anapanasati. And it has all of this stuff in it in the sense of Anicca. Everything is changing. So we, stand, we continue to, to look at that. But in fact, even that bicycle trip is not going to be the same in the beginning as it is in the middle or it is in the end. It's always changing. And so we begin to notice that. This is the way of, uh, of the practice of the Buddha. Even though there's little tiny techniques that are in there, um, our subtle changes or differences, <clears throat> this is the basic practice. And that any meditation that does not have uh, one of these basic ingredients in it, then is an incomplete practice. The way that the Mahasi students practice nowadays is not the Mahasi method that the Mahasi himself talked about. And yet even Mahasi himself does not talk about this issue of making the thoughts wholesome. And yet this is the teaching of the Buddha. This is the teaching of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. This is all of the suttas all over the place. So this is the way of practice, is to make sure that you have wholesome thoughts. Going back to that cow herd, your job is to whack that cow if it gets out of line. Because you can't, the, the only other option is to kill the cows. You don't want to do that. <laughs> so let's whack them and get them in line so that they're always wholesome. Does this make sense for you? Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. This, this was great. Thank you. Okay. Well, you go practice it like this and, and, uh, um, and come tell me all of your excellent results. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I will. All right. So I'm really glad to see you again. Yeah, I'm glad to see you too. Uh, I, I always, sorry, it's like longer in between than I, uh, I initially think, but I, I am working in between our sessions. I'm, I'm, all, I'm exploring all different. Yeah, I'm making progress. This, this is exactly what it's all about, to explore. To really explore. That's Anapanasati. That's what Sati means, is to wake up and take a look. One's right view is to explore, to investigate. Right. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the uh, discussion we had today kind of puts a lot of different concepts in like in context to how they relate to each other, which is very useful for me. So thank you. All right. Well, we'll see you later. Yeah, I'll see you later. Thank you. Okay, Julian. <laughs>